listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, so there's a lot of ways to set up today's episode, but Jeff brought us another great guest. I'm just going to introduce him real fast. David Renucci, he's the Chief Sales Officer of Inveris. What I like about this episode is that we, we set it up as we were going to talk about sales planning, but then as we were chit-chatting leading into this, David was telling us about this ride he took a company on that basically doubled revenue every year for three straight years. And I started to question in my mind, like, can you even plan for that? Is that even a planning thing? Is there any planning going on when it's actually like that? Or is it just total chaos? So we're going to start there, David. I, w- I want to start there because I'm just totally fascinated by that journey and what the hell went down. So maybe you can kind of you know, tell us about you, tell us about your current role, and then we can jump into that backstory. Sure. No, it's a pleasure to be on, Jeff. I appreciate you inviting me to the podcast and hopefully we can have an awesome conversation about this. I've been an enterprise level software selling for about the last 20 years, predominantly in the energy space, but I have spent some time serving all other types of verticals. But for the last, I would say, seven years have been hyper-focused in just the energy space. Leading teams, enterprise teams, companies that have you know over $100 million of annual revenue, $500 million all the way down to 5, 10, and 15. I've been lucky enough and fortunate enough to, to work with a, a lot of really good people and, and I've learned a lot along the way. And I think maybe what's a little bit intriguing about you know what you were mentioning before on, on the journey that I've been on and where I landed and just had the privilege of experiencing some explosive growth at a company over a you know, three to four year period really was a combination of everything that I'd learned up to that point. And so, yeah, I'm happy to be on today and, and look forward to this conversation. Well, we're excited to have you. I can promise you that. So you threw these numbers at us kind of rapid fire. And, and, and I, I just want to get inside of that, that whole story a little bit. So where were you at the time? And, and talk to us about that kind of rapid growth moment that you lived through. Because you also kind of described it as kind of like stars aligned. And I want to hear you talk about that because I think that's really interesting. It's kind of like we were also talking about sports in the setup. It's like to use that sports analogy, it's like you're in the zone. There was a moment where the whole team was in the zone and that zone lasted for a very long period of time. And let's talk about what that looked like and felt like. It really did. I, you know, I've always heard about a unicorn used as a word to define a company. I didn't really know what it meant other than, oh, it was defined as some type of threshold for a financial transaction. But being a part of what um, RS Energy was when it got acquired, when I was brought to the organization to work very closely with an old colleague and mentor of mine that was at the time the CRO of that company. It was an organization that was just an intelligence-minded organization that really delivered insights to the capital markets. At the time, the shale revolution was going on. So this was an energy company that was delivering insights to the capital markets where billions of dollars were sitting on the sideline and the shale industry was just forming. So they didn't have any technology, but the president of that organization and co-CEO found a niche and a way to align an unbiased opinion Versus where they would traditionally get their information from was a group of people that actually had a bias because they'd be representing a group of organizations said, hey, invest in our company. This approach was, we're going to offer you our unbiased opinion because we don't have a, a dog in the hunt, so to speak. And so for about, yeah, I would say 10 to 11 years developed a solid credibility with the marketplace where the money was in delivering these insights. And so when I came on, 
They were just at the tail end of had this huge presence of capital markets customers and a couple of operators, but mainly capital markets. And then they were developing a technology. And that was the exciting part that lured me in to say, hey, we're going to deliver a technology stack, leveraging our expertise, and then attack this operator market. And so I'll tell you a little bit about that journey. But if I fast forward to the end, when you say, talk to me a little bit about, yeah, it was like catching lightning in a bottle. At the end of it, when I look back, I remember meetings that I would have with my team. You know, you sit around and you say, remember the good old days? I used to tell people we are in the good old days. There will be a part of your sales career where you're going to look back and say, do you remember these times? We're in them right now. So we should be doing everything we can to capitalize on that. Because I had never experienced anything like this in, in my sales life. And it was a sales organization that was hyper aligned and focused to an enterprise selling motion that they, everybody bought into. It was a intelligence organization was really the secret sauce. It was the driving force and credible factor for our entire company that also bought into the selling motion and selling value and aligning high within the organization. And then it was a product team that was also hyper-focused, all involved in the sales motion, buying into the sales process so that when we went into an organization, there was no hierarchy sitting in front of the CEOs or the C-suite of organizations. It was an aligned team delivering insights that they couldn't find anywhere else. And now we were leveraging or providing technology stack they couldn't find anywhere else. And it was a fairly saturated market. I mean, there's some big names that every customer used. They didn't look at us as, oh, we have to displace those people to bring you in. They saw us as an additive, extra competitive advantage that quite honestly, those people that were in a hyper M&A mode back that just couldn't survive without us. And the other thing is we were aligned to the capital markets, their lenders. So their lenders were coming with questions that were actually fueled by us to now C-suites were looking for us to help them answer these questions before they could even prepare for like earnings calls and things like that. So it was, we doubled three years in a row, primarily because we stuck to our process and we had an entire organization just violently aligned around executing in that manner. And you were selling into CEOs of oil and gas and energy companies, right? That's right. I mean, it's hard to get an audience with the the super major CEOs, but we'd be at the executive vice president level. But everybody but the CEO, I mean, the super majors, we were selling into the CEOs, the COOs, those people that were responsible for meeting the board directives on a a quarterly basis. Yeah, it was was quite a ride. It's not something I've ever experienced in the past. We never used to, in the places I had been, we'd like to create messaging that we thought would resonate because of (laughs) self-referencing trap, you know. Here's why you should find this so important. But it always would stop at a ceiling. And this type of messaging, that's what I talk about lightning in a bottle. It was you execute a sales process with a hard to find technology stack and insights that the street is finds credible. And I mean, we would put out notes on organizations at times and you'd see the stock swing based on our opinion on the that we would put out to the street. Well, that catches people's attention. Not always good. I mean, we didn't find ourselves in real pleasant conversations a lot, but we find ourselves in very engaging, productive conversations that were all for helping how do you drive that company's strategy moving forward. I feel so justified right now. <laughs> David, do you have any idea where he's going? Because I, I really don't. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a complete no. loss. All, you know, all this stuff I've been pontificating for for years, I feel like leads to what David just articulated hyper focus 
choosing a niche, and this was even in a mature industry, you were still able to carve out a niche. It's about having a point of view and a strong one that takes risk putting something out there and being a thought leader to the degree that you're a market maker and you're actually moving things within the industry. But none of that happens unless you're aligned. And you went through like three or four different areas of alignment within the organization that ultimately aligned all together, but they were aligned in those individual functional areas first. And it seems, <laughs> it is lightning in a bottle to a, a large degree because you're dealing with people, right? And, and getting people all aligned is, is hard. That's why people get paid the, the big bucks. But it's, it's all of our podcasts kind of circle around this, Jason, don't you think? about how to get things aligned in order to move the market. Well, I think what's interesting about the way that David talks about it, to your point, is that we've, we've had a lot of these episodes where we'll talk about how to get alignment. He actually described what alignment feels like. This is what it mm. feels like when you're aligned. And then this is what happens in the marketplace when you're aligned, right? Like he actually is like giving you that sense of like, when those things actually work, then you get outcomes that you want and everything, you know, just feels different. And I love your comment. It's like, we're living in this. So let's, let's enjoy it because you know you don't know how long it's going to last. I want to get a little tactical with you for a second because so I don't think you share the specific numbers. Is it okay if I share some of the specific revenue numbers in that window or is that privileged information? <laughs> Maybe not exactly. Well, let me do it it's in a vague say, way. But I think it's fair to say this. And, and if, if you want me and I can explain it. So we did grow 100% year over year for three years. That's a hard number to do. And we weren't starting from like a tiny original number, but we started around, you know, $10 million. And the company ended up selling three and a half years later for over a billion. Our division started, the whole company was around 21 million, but the division that I was leading, the whole energy and private equity group started around 10 and doubled itself for for the next three years. And that was the point I wanted to make for listeners is that we're not talking conceptually about some, you know, billion dollar enterprise organization here. We're talking about an organization like yours. What I want to get tactical with with you for a second is what does planning look like in that environment? Like it's like what I'm curious about is did the plan drive the growth or did the growth drive the plan? Right. Like it's like, how did you even approach that? Like how did you say, hey, we're going to get to 20 million next year. We're going to get to whatever, you know, whatever the number is. You say double, I just throw that number. How did you approach that? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And this is something we can, we can talk about for hours, but to try not to. I don't remember the guy that broke the, what, three minute mile, running four minute mile. You know, it's never been done until it has was our was job. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> but it's never been done until it has. So we will force people. There was a terminology that we accepted. We drove out of our company. We didn't use this word or this word or this word. Because it means these things that we don't want to associate. They're simple things, just like, and we don't need to really go into them, but they're things that all salespeople use to describe their daily efforts. And we say, well, we're not, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a a demo. A demo means something. I want a demo. Okay. Well, that's not the type of words that we would use. So sometimes at a very tactical level, Jeff, it it was a reinforcement of the brand we wanted to create in the industry. This is who we want to represent. A CEO doesn't want to see a demo. And if they do, we're probably not aligning at this time. And this was a, you know, remember, we could be pretty picky. We ended up being pretty picky. 
you talked about what vision alignment felt like and saw, we knew what it felt like. And we knew if we were going to be wasting our time and if that particular effort was going to lead us down a path that was going to tarnish the brand we were trying to create. So we could be very selective because some of our early success and the credibility that we had, but going back down to a, a, a very tactical level and I said, it hasn't been done until it has been done. We crossed that threshold pretty quickly. Actually, the deal had had been done before I came on board. My mentor struck it, the first million dollar deal. Yeah. And they said, oh my God, you'll never get that. Well, it was just a different mentality to say, well, why not? And then the double-edged sword was they became so often, we used to capture those types of deals so often that then the product and the, the intelligence team would go, well, why aren't we getting a million dollars for that deal? And be like, hey, you know, <laughs> so you start to set these expectations. What was great is everybody was raising the bar for everybody else. Like I said, it was a, it was an amazing journey because I've never been a part of that. You walked in the room and everybody was here. And when you left, you didn't want to be the last one in the office and you didn't want to be the first one to leave. Not because somebody said something about it, because you just looked around and saw how invested everybody was committed to accomplishing the same thing. So on a tactical level, again, I know I'm getting away from that. The people I would look for needed to have three things. Do you know how to grow revenue in an account over one, three, and five years? Do you know how to align our organization with the buying organization at the highest levels? And can you tell a story? And Jeff, this goes to the marketing piece of this, right? So you got people, product, and brand with story. Can you tell a compelling story that's going to open those doors and get us the audience that we need. You're not going to be expected to do this on your own. Treat yourself with the type of respect and command the type of attention. And to Jeff, to your point earlier, bring a point of view and a perspective. Most salespeople know that. Having the courage to put it out there is one thing and having the confidence to stand behind it is another. Because our organization was so aligned, Jeff, salespeople that, that were asking for these meetings had the courage and the confidence because they knew the insights and the team that we were bringing to those meetings, what we were going to deliver, they couldn't find anywhere else. And so if somebody marginalized that, we would move on. And our answer was, it's not a no, it's just a not yet. They'll come around. We were trying to find the, the ones that were ready to, to move forward. That's super cool. You know, David, one of the things that you said there that sounds so invaluable was that you trusted one another. Yeah. And you know, one of the pieces, Jeff, that I didn't even really mention as a part of lightning in the bottle, because I was thinking about our customer facing team. We also had a violent alignment with marketing. I mean, they were a part of the entire process. Sometimes they would be a part of our discovery calls, definitely a part of our pre-strategy calls. We tried to avoid PowerPoint decks, believe it or not, we wouldn't even show anything. We'd go in there and have a discussion and then launch into you know, it was really just a value exchange between, again, the C-suite and, and us. But then the marketing on the backside, it, there was this ultimate trust. Oh, who has that? It didn't matter. Somebody owns it. We knew that they were going to meet the expectations that the team had set. You're going through this period of just rapid growth. Yeah. And I, I, another tactical question is, how were you creating those conversations? So like, were these things coming inbound? You know, was the reputation of the company expanding to the point where it's like, you know, they were coming to you or, did, or were your, was your team just really aggressively chasing? Like, what did it look like? That's a good question. So if I go back to what the, we leveraged the strengths of the company, didn't try to create false ones. So what were the strengths of our organization? Who were we in the marketplace? We were an invaluable source to the capital markets. Okay. Well, the capital markets are a lot of the time the largest investors in the operators. So we know that the C-suite is hearing questions 
and insights and challenges from the capital markets, whether it's in one-on-one calls and preparation or it's in analyst calls that are fueled and supported by what we were doing for the last 20 years, developing insights and information, digging into deep technical analysis and arming that community with questions. So we said, okay, well, what's our quickest entry point into the operator world? Because our new private equity backer saw the vision of our potential rapid growth. Well, how do we do that? How do we get in front of the operator? And it was leveraging those relationships. You don't go downstream where, again, it was a mature market. There were plenty of players down there. You don't go fight the fight down there. You want to try to think where you can fight that fight to win. Well, we could get introductions and meetings at the C-suite because of the relationships that we had at the capital market. So immediately, that's where we started to leverage our entry point in the very, very beginning. How do we leverage that community and awareness and those relationships and credibility uh, to get that audience. So that's what we would do at a high level. Not say, hey, introduce me, but uh, through very targeted types of reach out efforts, either one-on-one, either email or call, scripted type of here's how you're going to try to get that audience. And so that was the initial thing. And then after you started getting a couple to buy into that, you know what was funny? I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. We also didn't provide references. It was crazy. No references. Who else uses you? Sorry, we don't share that information. But if you look at this report that ranks all these operators and their efficiency and, you know, and how they're performing in this basin and what the break evens are and all that other type of information, if you look at all the companies that we just put out in that report, half of them are our customer. Or we're not going to tell you which one. So it was also an interesting thing is they couldn't go and talk to other operators. Again, competitive advantage and secrecy and the way they wanted to do things. They wanted to leverage us in a way that armed their teams to be more competitive or even create an advantage. But it was a credibility back to the street that really helped us in those early stages. And so we knew that and that's how we would leverage it and capitalize on it. That was awesome. So, but we're, we're short on time. So I, I want to fast forward, Jeff, because we spent a lot of time talking about this moment in time, lightning in a bottle, when you were in a super high growth organization. And now you're actually in a, in a much larger entity in a much more mature situation, I think. What I'd like to do is I'd like to juxtapose that for a few minutes. Talk about, you know, now that you're in a, a much bigger organization, much bigger customer footprint, what is sales planning and account management look and feel like here relative to what it was like before? Well, good question. And I'll, I'll try to be brief. We had 300 customers and we were, you know, fortunate enough to be acquired and into a organization that had 6,000 customers, all of them, most of them duplicative, right? So this company, when we talk about a mature space, had already run the course of the distribution of a software organization and they were attacking the long tail as much as they were attacking the rest of the, the rest of the marketplace. So you, they acquired the technology stack to then create the idea behind it was how do we create something very unique again? So how can we level up, so to speak, an overall solution because the company that bought us had data sets that we would never have, an expertise that we would never have. Coupled that with this, that that it they would take them years to develop or the people and the process. So just bring them together. So you're right. Instantly, almost overnight, you had these cultures coming together and people that might be listening to this or, or you guys have experienced this as well. I mean, the first year was kind of like, all right, we have a good vision. And our CEO and presidents made an awesome decision early on to adopt this technology stack. 
the one that they acquired and start bringing forward and integrating to bring a new product and solution that none of our customers have seen before. And so that was a journey as we were meshing the, the cultures of the organization into a both supporting both a very high volume, critical component of transactional type of sales. When I say transactional things, zero to 60 days, things that can be closed within a quarter, found and closed within a quarter. How do you mesh that with large enterprise selling at the same time, supporting a product and an overall solution that's way different than we could offer? Then now you've got, that's just that piece. Then the company's expanded into through acquisitions again, you know, business automation where now we're in the back office saving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars and in invoicing and pricing and creating a marketplace there. And then we have trading and risk solutions and, and now also heavily investing in the energy transition. So if you do a lot of different acquisitions, our power and renewables group is actually from a percentage standpoint, the fastest, most robust growing part of our company. So now when you take a step back, you're saying, okay, well now we're, you know, the new energy company is a big term that you know, a lot of the super majors like to use, uh, but we're a new energy software company provider. Um, we became overnight the largest energy SaaS player on the planet with access to 6,000 customers that needed a, a part of their strategy to support this transition into enterprise level selling. So we haven't abandoned it, but before where we would say, I'm not going to lock horns down below, so to speak, again, to this feature function fight, but how do we serve both? I can't yeah. just stay up here or just stay down here. I've got to figure out a way better approach to optimize the same type of results that we're striving to achieve with our new private equity backers, right? So it, it hasn't been easy, but how do we plan? So here's what we require. It goes back to one of the first points that we we talked about. I'm looking for the skill sets of, on. we have a couple of different roles on how we support our customers. But when you take a look at a customer profile, your own entire accounts, I want you to map out the next 18 months. Do you know where and how we're going to drive value that would allow us in a value exchange to ask for additional money over the next 18 months, two years? How are we going to grow that account? and grow the relationship. And that, that could mean a lot of different things by every one of the accounts. Force them to go through that on a monthly basis. Again, in a similar type approach we did before, we're product, intelligence, now we have customer success arm, we have marketing and support, all as a part of providing this view with one person that's helping drive that strategy. So that's how we kind of plan on a monthly basis to support the one, three, and five-year revenue growth targets that we have for each one of those customers. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. What I love about that, it's focused on the value that we're going to create on behalf of the client. And my gut says a lot of professional services firms just don't look at it that way. They look at it as like, what else can we do to grow our revenue inside of this client, right? It's a me-centric, firm-centric view, not a client-centric view. Even though they love to say how client-centric they are, I don't think that's the way they think about it. I could be wrong, but that's just my experience is that that's what I hear 
when I listen to firms frequently. So you've inverted it the right way. And I, and I love that. And I also love this idea that in my head, I'll, I'll do my best to describe it, David, but it's like, I feel like in the first scenario or, or the first part of the story that you've told us today, it's like you're the, the upstart, right? You're coming out of the capital markets into the operator segment and they don't necessarily know you that well, but you're changing the game here. And now all of a sudden you're the incumbent. And it, we, we talked about sports analogies. It's like, you know, in the one, you were you were chasing the opportunity to be the champion. You became the champion. Well, now you got to defend the title. It's like, oh, good Lord. And this is a totally different dynamic. It's a lot harder. It's a lot different. So I, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of really interesting juxtapositions there that I find really fascinating. I have a question for you, David. I think I heard you say, but I, I could be wrong. So I want to clarify this. You have to start with a solution. And you said earlier, you know, you have to play on the strengths of the firm you're in. Be unapologetic about that strength. But you start with a solution. And what Jason just described is firms falling in love with their solution. And they go out and they're the proverbial hammer trying to to find a nail. But I think the distinction that you're making is the solution is really just a synonym for creating value. And the lens that the sales team, the marketing team, customer service team, is the creating value part that's so important. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And it can be such a cliche um, term, Jeff, that you know we talk about, I drive the words hope, think, and feel out of the second words of my salespeople's mouth when they talk about an opportunity they work on. Why would they move forward with us? You know, if the second word is, well, is hope, think, or feel, then they really don't know. And we drive to, they have to understand the company's business because they're all different. Even though the problems and the pressures and the pains are similar, they're still different. And if they don't associate a unique value to what we're doing, well, then you're just, you're fighting a commodity fight that we're trying to avoid. Sometimes you have to do that. Get it? There's just, even CEOs are just stuck in that rut. You got to know that because it'll drive you nuts trying to sell value to somebody who doesn't care about it. And so you got to work and it does start with the solution and does, you said it earlier on this call, challenge our guys to have a point of view. You have to have a point of view and perspective if you're going to have a meaningful conversation and don't have a boring one. Don't have one that everybody else has. Truly do your research and your homework on not just the company, but the people involved in that part of the process and the decision that are in the CEO. Like it's sometimes it's a simple question. Who does all the talking on the analyst calls? People, if they've never listened to them, they think, well, it's a CEO. Well, maybe not. Could be the CFO. Well, what does that tell you about the company? What were they talking about? You know, maybe because it's a COO. Okay. What does that tell you about the company? Maybe the CEO doesn't even participate in the board meetings. Who knows? But there's a point, assumptions can become very dangerous when you're trying to lead with a value proposition and solution that everybody should attach themselves to this. They don't. And so we really challenge our guys, you've got to have a unique perspective and a point of view here. And then have done the homework to have the courage and confidence to stand behind it. And you're not argumentative. This isn't belittling anybody, but you're trying to gain somebody's respect, not facilitate some thousand requests that are going to come after that. And if you do it the right way, it becomes very obvious. I really like the hope, think, feel thing. I wrote that down. I wrote down all three words and crossed them out on my on my thing. I love it. <laughs> what I love about it, this is a little really random, by the way. But what I love about what you just talked about is I kind of feel like modern marketing has tried to make sales intellectually lazy. 
Like, well, we're just going to give you the persona and you just, you just go sell to the persona. I'm like, no. And what you just basically described is the exact opposite of that, which is like, no, you have to really understand every individual client, every individual person, every individual organization to really get at what are their drivers, what value can you create for them, and then build a compelling point of view against it. You can't just like, you know, pull the, the persona deck off the shelf and then shove a PowerPoint on their face because nobody cares. Right. And, but you, know, uh, you also said it earlier on this call is also don't fall in love with it because yeah. sometimes you can come up with what you feel they should care about that's unique to them and they still don't. Well, what are they communicating in value? And you got to align to that as well. Sometimes it hurts your feelings. You're like, man, this is how this company, you can see it. Your analysts agree with you. They don't. That's fine. You got a decision to make. I can keep preaching that message and and get nowhere, or I can pivot and adjust to what this company actually does align to with value. What they do think they want and need. Yeah, That's right. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from this whole conversation is just uh, when I think of planning, I think in numbers and I think in macros. And I think you know, what you've kind of exposed here is that, that that's like kind of the wrong way to look at it. It's more about like really just everything you've approached has been about, you know, how do you create value for an individual client? And getting underneath that. And that, I don't know, that to me is worth its weight in gold for anybody listening. It's create your own low hanging fruit. I always love that question. Well, where's the low hanging fruit? Well, if there was low hanging fruit, somebody else would have already picked it. You go, go create your own low hanging fruit. Right. And it's part of that journey that you just kind of shared. Yeah. Jeff, do you have any burning questions that we have not asked David that we, we should ask before we lose him? Because he's been phenomenal and I don't want to cut him short. You know, one of the things that has really jumped out at me. We're talking process, right? Sales, planning, process. But we really haven't talked much process at all. <laughs> Correct. Right? It's It's been having a clear vision, you know, having trust and confidence in your, your teammates. But it really is about you have to get the right people with the right mindset on the bus yeah. to go. So what I would, I would be curious to know, David, is you're a sales leader and sales is tough. How do you motivate the people to get out there and get it done? My motto is I can't motivate you. My job is to try to inspire you to be better today than you were yesterday. And I'm going to give you the the ammunition. I'm going to give you the support all the way up until the point you don't care about your success as much as I do. But you have to motivate yourself. And whether that's your family or your money or your life, or your lifestyle or retirement, your own motivation is what gets you out of bed. We have to provide the inspiration. And that's what was interesting about that catching lightning in a bottle, why you wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning and not leave until eight o'clock at night. Because I was inspired by what we were trying to accomplish and everybody around me. It, it was dripping with it. You just wanted to be a part of that. And now in a much larger organization, it still exists. COVID's made it harder to find because nobody's coming into the office. So you kind of got to go above and beyond from an inspiration standpoint to tap into those things in each person that says, what's going to motivate you? Kind of like selling value, right? It, what motivates you isn't going to be the same thing that motivates Jason or inspires you guys. So I've got to, you got to spend the time with your people really aligning to what's going to inspire them and then model it. So I'm trying to model the, the inspiration by all the things that we just talked about. And you'll, you'll some people, my bet, it's funny. The best people on the team or the salespeople that I've worked with are the ones that call me the most. And they're either disappointed in a pursuit that they did, or they want to strategize about a call, or they're upset that they're not going to hit the number at the end of the month. 
it's funny that the best people expect the most out of themselves. And I spend most of my time with those guys, by the way. I've learned that in my entire career. And I want that to draw the attention of the people that said, I want to be like those people and then bring them along and, and get them into that. So. You know, I want to take us closer to wrap, but but the thing that I loved about both of your your back-to-back comments was that we're talking about sales planning, but David, based on my conversation with you in the last half an hour, the way you essentially have approached sales planning is about developing mindsets. It's about making sure that you have the right mindsets in your team. It's not about necessarily numbers or targets or this or that. It's about if the people have the right mindset and then you can inspire them, they're going to be successful. Um, and they're going to hit the targets that you want to hit. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing to take away for people. It's like put a little bit less energy on the process of stuff and a little bit more energy on the mindset of stuff. And you'll probably be pretty happy with the results. Yeah, I love the way that you sum that up. You have to have a process, obviously. But right, I, I'm expecting you guys to bring that, the team to bring that to the table. We're going to help coach you on that. It's a process. But without the right mindset, man, you're never going to get the audience you want. Yeah. Well, this was an absolute pleasure. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. I wish we could have spent more time talking about just the world of oil and gas in general and energy, because I just think it's fascinating as heck. So, But probably we wouldn't have, have made for the best digital radio, at least for our audience. But anyway, <laughs> so Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, for connecting us with David and connecting our listeners with David. I think it's well worth their time and our, certainly our time. Great takeaways today. Thank you, Mr. Renucci. Yep, no problem. Thank you very much. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.